we're going to continue with our epic series. Hopefully by now you know most of this story. If you haven't been around and you'd like to get caught up, I did update the website and you can now download those messages from the beginning of the year up until now. I think there's maybe one or two in there where the audio didn't get recorded properly, but you can catch up. But I want to start this morning with probably the fastest history of the people of Israel that you've ever heard, okay? Because I realize people kind of come in and out. Maybe you've missed a couple weeks. You don't know where we're at. Starting with God leading his people out of slavery in Egypt after 40 years of wandering in the desert because of their hard-heartedness, God eventually brought them to the promised land, the land that he promised to give to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he led them across the Jordan River into the promised land in this epic battle against the city of Jericho where they pretty much didn't do anything except walk and yell and God gave them the victory miraculously. And then God stayed with them as they conquered the promised land and divided it up among the 12 tribes of Israel as their permanent inheritance on earth, a gift from God. And after that, he established then the judges to guide his people in his laws But the Jewish people were profoundly rebellious. We've touched on that idea a couple times throughout this story. And so in spite of God's plan to lead them and be their God, they demanded that he give them a king. And uh, in spite of the fact that uh, God thought that it wouldn't go well for them, he acquiesced for some strange reason. And even though he warned them it wouldn't go well, uh, because of their insistence, he raised up Saul to be the king of Israel. And after time, it became apparent that Saul was a cruddy king. He was a poor king. And rather than listen to God and do what God commanded him to do, uh, Saul did what he felt was right in his own eyes. And so God called the, Sam, or the prophet Samuel to anoint David as king over Israel. And there were many years of strife in Israel as uh, Saul concluded his kingship and David ascended to the throne and began to reign as king. And as my friend Steve told us last week, God made this promise to David that his throne would be established forever and his son would rule as king over Israel forever. And I think Steve did a wonderful job of showing us how that promise came true, even though it appeared not to come true. And we now know that that promise was perfectly fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the son of David, meaning the descendant of David, who was Christ, the eternal king, because Jesus always was, and he always is, and he always will be. And then in gratitude for all that God had done for his people Israel, David decided to build a house for the Lord, a grand temple where God could come and dwell among his people. But God tells David, and we're going to touch on this next week, we're going to go into this in detail, that it won't be his duty to build the temple. That privilege will pass to his son. And many years later, Solomon, David's son, assumes the throne of the king of Israel and endeavors to build this permanent home, this temple where the nations can come to worship the one true God. And Solomon purchases the materials and he conscripts tens of thousands of men. And over the course of seven long years, he builds one of the most spectacular structures to ever adorn the ancient Middle East. And if it hadn't been destroyed by the Roman Empire, this would be a building that we would say rivals the pyramids and the Sphinx in its beauty and grandeur. And on the day of dedication for the temple... Solomon sacrifices to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep 
and describes the purposes for the temple. And he says, essentially, this will be a house where the one true God of Israel will dwell, where his people will be able to come into his presence and pray and seek his face, where prayers of repentance can be made and where all the nations of the earth may see and be convinced that the God of Israel is the one true God of the universe who sits enthroned above every other God. In their book, The Drama of Scripture, the authors Bartholomew and Goheen put it this way. They say, in essence, the infinite God of the universe, the creator of mankind and creator of all things, now has a permanent address on earth. If you googled God's home, it would zero in on the temple. And should any person desire an audience with this God, they may go to the temple and find him there. This place where the eternal reality of God intersects with his finite creation in space and time. And in the midst of his dedication of the temple, Solomon points out an interesting reality about the temple, about this home, and about God's choice to dwell with his presence there. And it's 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, it says this. Solomon asks, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? And Solomon acknowledges the very same question that I want to ask. And the question that I imagine the people of Israel were stuck on. And maybe the question that you find in your mind this morning How and why does the infinite God of the universe come to dwell in a relatively small stone building in the rather unimpressive city of Jerusalem? I mean, this God whom scripture tells us is without time, without boundaries, without obligation. This God who is powerful and fearsome and all-consuming fire of righteousness and mind-blowing holiness. This God incomprehensible, incomparable, vast beyond measure, beautiful beyond description. How is it that this God fits inside and can be contained within the stone walls of a man-made temple? And the only answer that I can think of to that question is that our God is a condescending God. He's a condescending God. But let me define that term for you because you may be thinking, that's not how I understand the word condescending, okay? When we use that word, it carries negative connotations in our modern era. When I hear the word condescending, what comes to mind is this air of superiority, right? You, you think of the employee at the DMV who rolls his eyes and scolds you when I ask if I'm in the right line to renew my registration, as if I spend eight hours a day there like he does, and I should just know better, Okay. Or I think of my four-year-old son, Aiden, teaching his little sister a skill that he's already mastered because he's over a year older than her. He's more experienced than Karis and telling her that she's doing it wrong with this snooty sound in his voice, right? That's condescending. The word condescending, as we use it, tends to come with this tone of harsh superiority. It's generally cruel and it's rude to condescend to those around you. And while our God most certainly could have a condescending attitude in this sense, because he is, frankly, just superior, that's not what I mean, okay? To understand the word condescending, I want to use it quite literally. 
The prefix in this word is the prefix con. It means with, if you're taking notes. Con means with, like connection. Okay, the word connection, there's a link or there's a relationship between the two things. And obviously you can guess what the word descend means. It means to move downward. And so to say that our God is a condescending God is to say that he is the God who moves downward from his lofty position to be with us. He stoops and he lowers himself, his position to have a relationship with us. And we, unfortunately, we cannot ascend from our position as sinful, broken, finite human beings. We cannot build a ladder high enough or a portal strong enough to take us into the presence of God. No matter how advanced our physics become, we cannot approach the unapproachable God of Scripture by our own means. But God can condescend to come down from his lofty position of grandeur to be with us and among us. And at the temple, that's precisely what he did among the people of Israel. To summarize 2 Chronicles 7 verses 1 through 3, it tells us that upon the completion of the dedication of the temple, a fire came down from heaven and consumed all of the offerings and the sacrifices, just like that, that Solomon had given unto the Lord. And it tells us that the people of Israel witnessed the glory of God fill the temple, and they were so overwhelmed that they bowed their faces to the ground. And they worshiped God, saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That's the presence of God among his people. But God's condescending behavior, his willingness to squeeze his presence into the terribly inadequate home of the temple, had a wonderful purpose. And Solomon speaks to that purpose In 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 57 through 61, which is what I believe I put in your notes if you want to read along. He says, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God. Walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. And we serve a condescending God, not an arrogant God, proud in his lofty position, but a humble God who is willing to set aside his majesty to dwell with those who love him, willing to condescend from his majesty to our lowliness so that you and I could know him and be with him, so he could be present with his people Israel. And yet, as amazing as this scene at the temple is, it's just a precursor for far greater things. It's only a tiny example of the way that God was willing to condescend and lay aside his glory to be with his people. And you know where I'm going with this. Because you've hopefully been hanging around for this epic series. God condescended even more 
when he was born with human flesh to his mother, Mary, in a stable in Bethlehem. Mary, who unbelievably was shunned because she was still a virgin. Mary, who uh, was essentially illegitimate in having Jesus because Joseph and her were not yet married when she became pregnant. God condescended to that, the ultimate act of condescension, when God himself became a man and he made himself like the creatures he had created so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And Solomon's question at the dedication comes to mind when we think of Jesus, the God-man, wrapping himself in human frailty. Will God indeed dwell on earth? And you can hear the shock and the disbelief in the voice of Solomon as he asks that question. I mean, for a Jew with a lofty idea of the impressiveness of God, the otherness of God, this thought is scandalous. Impossible even. And yet the answer to the question is shockingly, yes. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Will God condescend so much so that his presence might be found among humanity? Will God stoop to the level of his creatures? And in Jesus, the Messiah, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. God has come to dwell on earth so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. But I think the shock of this reality goes even further still. Because it it would have been one thing if God had stooped down into his creation so that he could sit on a throne and the world would grovel before him. Isn't that what most leaders in the world do? They assume positions of leadership and authority so that they can have power and lord it over other people. That's even what the Bible tells us they do. And it might have made sense for this almighty God to come to earth so that the world would grovel before him, so that his creation would serve him, so he could watch as people worshipped him, and he demand power and prestige and glory over them. I mean, that kind of action, frankly, would have been understandable because God deserves all of the glory and the honor and the prestige. But that's not what Christ came for when he was present on earth, is it? Jesus condescended beyond that. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself to the point of being a servant and going to the cross. I think it would have given Solomon a heart attack if someone had come up to him after that ceremony and told him that God would indeed dwell on earth beyond what you can think, Solomon. But not to rule And not to be served and worshipped as a king, but to die. And to give his life as a ransom. To die a shameful, humiliating, disgraceful, outrageous death like a criminal on the cross. So that all the people of earth may know that he is the Lord God. And that God himself has made a way out of sin. So that the world might see firsthand that it was never God's intention to dwell removed and apart from his beloved creation. But that he always wanted us to be in his presence. And the profound beauty of the cross is that God condescended from his glory and authority to take on our shame and our helplessness. So that we might be brought back into his presence once again. 
And do you see the joy of Christianity and why our faith in this one true God is so radically different than what other people out there proclaim with their religious beliefs? What God is like our God who is so tremendously and humbly condescending? Not proud, not arrogant, but selfless and humble. Willing to squeeze himself into our shame so that we could be lost in the robes of his righteousness. But I think there's still even more for us to learn from the temple. And when I came to this conclusion this week as I was studying this, uh, it sort of blew my mind. You, you may not be as excited about it as I am, but I hope that you think it's as cool as I do as I share it with you. Okay? Remember God's promise to David from last week that Steve told us about? It's found in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. And it's about David's son being king. Let me read it for you real quick. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, now maybe you can appreciate with me the a double meaning of this passage. There's the literal meaning, the obvious meaning, which is that David will have a son named Solomon, and Solomon will build a temple in Jerusalem where God will dwell in Israel. But there's also this deeper prophetic meaning that from the line of David will come the eternal King Jesus. That's what we learned about last week. And Jesus will build a house for God's name. Now the house referred to here is not the temple which was destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman Empire. This is not a prophecy about the temple. The house that Jesus built for God's name is his bride, the church. It's the people of God in whom the very spirit of God dwells. It's you and it's me and it's believers who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior across the globe and throughout history. And we are the house that Jesus built for God's name and in whom God himself makes his home. And in this church age inaugurated when the spirit of God came and dwelt among his people on, in power on Pentecost, Jesus left his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And it is the presence of God which does indeed dwell on earth. And it's not contained in a church building on some street corners. It's not contained in the temple which is destroyed in Jerusalem. It's contained in the hearts of those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. And that, my friends, I think is a serious act of condescension. That God has condescended so far as to make his home not in the beautiful four walls of the temple, but in the flesh and blood of our sinful hearts. And through Christ Jesus, we are made righteous. And even the fallen sinfulness of our human hearts has been overcome by the Spirit of God. And the eternal, one true God, remember this, without boundaries, without obligation, powerful, fearsome, an all-consuming fire of perfect righteousness and mind-blowing holiness, the God incomprehensible, incomparable, vast beyond measure and beautiful beyond description, now makes his home in you and in me 
dwelling indeed on earth. In the hearts and lives of those who have Jesus as their savior and their salvation. And his purposes are twofold, just like they were in the Old Testament temple. First, that we might be in the presence of God all the time and without separation. If you as a Christian think that you come here to church on Sunday morning to be in the presence of God, you're wrong. You have been in the presence of God every moment of your life since you surrendered your heart to Christ. God is with us because for those of us who trust Christ for salvation, Jesus makes his home inside of us. And the second purpose was that through us, his new temple, all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And what a privilege and what a responsibility you have to represent Christ to the world. Scripture communicates to us that the unapproachable God dwells in us so that we are always near him. And he overlooks our sin and our failure. He sees through our evil. He rescues and redeems us all through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And we have then been called and commissioned to represent him to an unbelieving world so that through our love, through our righteousness, through our wisdom, through our peacemaking, through our Christ-likeness, all the peoples of the world may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. And we don't, procl- we don't proclaim the name of God condescendingly through mean-spirited behavior towards those who don't believe. We don't do it through war. We don't do it through fear-mongering like some religions do. We don't do it forcefully or arrogantly. I guess I should say we shouldn't do it that way because sometimes it has been done that way, hasn't it? But we don't proclaim the name of this condescending God through condescending behavior ourselves. We do it like Christ did it, through gentle love, through humility, through truth and grace and peace. We do it by regarding the world, our neighbors, and even our enemies as more significant than we even regard ourselves. Ponder that commitment for a second that you've made before God. Because that is your calling and your responsibility. To regard the world, our neighbors, and even our enemies as more significant than even ourselves. Like Jesus did when he went to the cross. We don't proclaim the name by being condescending in the way the world condescends. But we do it in the way that Jesus condescended. In humility. By coming down from our pride and our arrogance and our self-centeredness to be with a broken world that desperately needs our Savior Jesus. I mean, God could have stayed removed from us in holiness. He deserved the worship and the glory, but he laid it aside in humility. Now we're going to do communion here at Maricopa Springs, and just for those of you who've never been with us as we've done communion before, I have one more thought I want to share, but just to set you up for communion, our worship team is going to come back up and they're going to lead us in some music. We're going to worship through song because all of our life is an act of worship. And as they lead us in worship, you're invited to make your way to the table in the back. 
where you can take communion, please understand that if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, this invitation is not extended to you. But you can give your life to Jesus today, and then you can join us at the communion table. And at the communion table, you'll find either wine or grape juice. You can tear off a piece of the bread. We do communion by intention, so just dip it and eat it right there. And then you can make your way back to your seat and you can sing and worship with us. Um, But before we do communion, I I just want to remind you of this. You know, if you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and Jesus is your Lord and Savior and you have surrendered your life to him, then I just want to warn you, do not dare be condescending towards our God this morning. After all that Jesus has done for you, don't you dare regard his kindness towards you with a cheap and condescending attitude like some mistakenly do. Don't belittle his grace. Don't belittle his mercy. Don't you demean the power of his presence in your life as you wrestle and struggle with sin. Don't you look down your nose or patronize his precious bride, the church. And don't you fail to remember that his purpose for redeeming you is to glorify his name so that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. And I think too many people who call themselves Christians are condescending towards God in the attitude with which they come into worship before him. And it's simply unacceptable And for all that Jesus has done for us, he deserves everything from us. And when we give him less than our whole hearts, when that is the goal, something less than all of our heart, then we sin. And when we fail to live in his grace and we are condemned by sin, then we sin. And when we fail to represent him well to a disbelieving world, then we sin. And when we act as if the spirit of God were not alive within us, then we sin. And let's just be honest and say, we have a lot of sin in our lives. I have a lot of sin in my life. But thanks be to God that where sin is, grace abounds all the more through Christ Jesus. And so today is a day of repentance for us as a church and forgiveness As we go together as a church and take communion. Before you touch that bread and before you touch that wine. Before you get up out of your seat to make your way to the table. You remember that you are the Lord's temple. And you spend the necessary time required repenting before God for your failure to remember. That the holy God of the infinite universe. Of infinite worth and glory himself. Has chosen to make his home in you. And you are his chosen vessel for works of righteousness. You are his beloved child, his instrument of grace. His Holy Spirit dwells in you with all the power to raise your dead heart back to life and give you victory over sin and evil. His blood covers you with all power and authority to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you perfect before your heavenly Father who himself is perfect. His temple and his home has become your body and your heart and the church and the body of believers, however it may be expressed across the globe. And so with a thankful heart, with a thankful heart, take that bread and take that wine 
with greater confidence than you have ever approached the throne of God and remember just how low Jesus stooped for your salvation and you give God glory for his grace and his kindness towards you. Because God indeed does dwell on earth and your heart is his home. Let me pray. God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. And we know that if we have put our trust in your son Jesus for our salvation, for our redemption, then we stand before your throne righteous. And we thank you for giving us the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for this humble act of condescension where your son set aside his glory and his power and his authority to go to the cross so that we might be saved and redeemed. And God, we know that we are forgiven and so we lay these sins before you this morning, whatever they may be. And we know that you forgive us. We know that in the blood of Christ, these sins have been paid for and forgiven and we are bought, we are ransomed because of your son Jesus. And God, would you help us to live in the power and the reality and the truth of this idea that you make your home in us. It is your Holy Spirit that chooses to dwell in the hearts and lives of believers. And God, as we've been forgiven, I pray that we would come to our seats and we would worship through the power of your Holy Spirit in ways that we've never worshipped you before. In your precious son's name, amen. Amen.